What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, everyone. Hope everyone's well. Now, if I say bridesmaids, spy, freaks and geeks, that should lead you to my guest today. He's a director, writer, actor, does everything. Very clever man. And he's lovely too. And he is one of the best dressed men I've ever met. He wears the most beautiful outfits. And his name is Paul Feig. Oh, this is lovely. Hello, Paul. Hello, Twigs. How are you? Well, I'm very, very, very cold, and I bet you're in brilliant, <laughs> beautiful sunshine because you're in California and we're in... I'm less I'm less cold than you are. <laughs> it's pretty, since you left, it's suddenly... It's since you left, Paul, you see, the temperature has go. dropped. <laughs> I took the sunshine and the warmth with me. You did, you did. But is it nice to be... Well, you've got... I mean, yeah. that is home, California, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm kind of half and half mm. uh, for the last four years. Mm-hmm. Actually, I've been mostly London for the last four years because I've made my last, uh, I shot two of my last move, last three movies in the UK. One right in London, I think called Last Christmas, and then another one called The School for Good and Evil, which we shot in Belfast. But then we did all our post in London, and then I did post on my new movie there too. So London's home away from home. <laughs> it is. It is. My wife is completely London. She uh, does not want to come back to L.A. I know. <laughs> but I, know. I have to go back we've, and forth. We've had that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, she... exactly. Oh, no, I'm guaranteed. <laughs> Lovely, Laurie. <laughs> well, I love California. I haven't been there for ages, actually. I did live there. I've, I've had two spates of living there. I lived there in the kind of mid-70s. Mm. And then... I lived there. I did a very short-lived sitcom in the early 90s. And so I lived there then for about three years. And it was great. We had, I mean, the weather is fabulous. It's 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 a very constant thing here. I mean, it, the funny thing is, because I've lived in L.A., I mean, gosh, I think more than 40 years because uh, I moved out here for college. And nobody in London or anywhere else wants to hear it, but you, it does get mm-hmm. slightly tedious that it's always the same weather, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I also remember when, when we, I did live there for that little time, there is like a little period in the kind of January, February, March, where it does get a bit cold, doesn't it? Especially at night. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, we definitely get that kind of that that desert <laughs> yeah. cold. Yeah, I'll say because once the nighttime comes, the desert get cold. <laughs> exactly, it does. Sun gone, it all drops. Uh, but you know, but it's nice. It, it it has a nice balance. And you know, to complain about LA weather is to, to really be a terrible person. Now you were born in Michigan. Whereabouts? Right outside Detroit, um, a little town called Mount Clemens, Michigan, in Clinton Township. So anybody who runs for president has to come to Clinton Township to talk to auto workers and blue-collar workers, which were all the people I grew up with. Detroit's the big car center, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, The automotive capital, or was, I guess it still is for American cars, obviously, but um, you know the foreign cars have come in and taken over. And it, I mean, when I was growing up in the 70s in uh in Michigan, there was quite a recession, uh, you know, when the auto industry was sort of cratering uh, because of the imports and like, you know, American truck drivers would drive you off the road <gasps> if you were driving a foreign car. Oh so my. it got very ugly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Is that true? <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, it got very ugly. Very oh, my ugly. goodness. Oh, that was when the Japanese and the German cars started coming in, I bet. Yeah, if you were driving a Honda, look out! You were uh, wow. you were, you were uh, <laughs> prey to any uh, any truck driver. That's that's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough tough town, Twigs. Tough town. I keep I keep to me Chrysler when I come in. <laughs> there you there you go. That's right. I think now and everybody's just giving up. No, I know. And oh gosh, last time I was actually I was I didn't live there, but I I I was judging for a bit on America's Next Top Model, and I hadn't been in LA for oh, I don't know ten years. the the tra- The volume of traffic was terrifying. Actually, it had suddenly jumped from when I was there in the like nineties, two thousands, and yeah. oh my goodness, getting getting anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and, and our freeways are really wide, and they keep widening them more. But it's just there's just so many cars because that's all you do. That's the only way you can get around is, is driving, and pub, public transportation is is is. It's not that it's bad here. It's just the problem is L.A. is so gigantic. So big. You know they, yeah, well, they put in like an underground here, but. Even if you take the underground to a place, then you're miles away from where you need to go. So you still have to get a car or a taxi or something. Yeah. So uh, it, it's a tough town. But then London, London is the most packed with cars I've ever been just because the streets are so narrow. And um, normally when I do a, a movie, well, when, when I'm in post-production to do a movie, they give me a, a driver, which sounds very fancy. And it is. It is um, really fancy. But I, <laughs> it is. It's like we driven around. But but this last movie, I said, like, I don't want a driver because all I do is sit in traffic. Like, I can jump on the tube I and know. I get wherever it, I need to it go. Is. I, it is. Actually, you're right. I mean, we, we, we went out to lunch today and we thought, should we get a car? And then we thought, no, we can do it on the tube in 20 minutes. A car would probably take an hour. Cause That's exactly the it. The average speed you can drive in London now is five miles an hour. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I know. And that's going fast, I'm telling you. I mean, there's nothing worse when you get in a cab and, like, the people that you were walking with, when you, yeah. like, they pass you. Like, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. And the tube is nice now because it's normally so hot, but it's so cold out that now you can warm up on the tube. So you grew up in, in Michigan. Is that where you lived all your childhood in Michigan? Yeah, yeah, all the way until the age of 17. Then I moved out to California to be a tour guide at Universal Studios. Is that why you moved out there? Or no, yeah, you, didn't you yeah. go to college in California? 
Yeah, but I went in first as a to be a tour guide. I had done my 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 second year of college in Detroit. No, my first year, my first, my freshman year of college in Detroit, and wanted to go to Hollywood because that was my dream. And discovered that they were doing uh, auditions to be a tour guide at Universal Studios. And I had done the tour as a kid and thought that's showbiz. And so drove out like 24 hours or 48 hours straight through, got there and auditioned and got the job. So, and then when I was at, when I was a tour guide at Universal Studios, that's when I found out about USC Film School. And that's why I applied there. And then oh, I, there. I see. But yeah. actually, I'm not surprised you, because you, you've got an amazing, you, your voice is fantastic. Your speaking oh, you. voice, thank you know, the the the, <laughs> the um, tombra, I think it's called, is wonderful. Oh, there you so go. So for a thank tour you. guide, it's perfection. It was fun. You know, the funny <laughs> thing was I, I learned how to be myself on a microphone because when I first started doing it, the first half of the summer, I would talk like a DJ. So, hey, everybody, welcome to uh, Universal Studios. <laughs> uh, that, that. And then, like, the drivers would go, like, why are you doing this? I don't know. So I finally learned how to just be myself on a microphone. And was it from that, wasn't it from there you decided to do stand-up? Am I right? Have I got it in the right order? Yeah, I actually started doing it in Detroit before that when I was like 15 years oh, old. Oh, wow. I would, I would go to these. Yeah, I'd have my parents take me because you weren't allowed to be in a club unless you were 18. So, uh, yeah, so I would go to these clubs and do my terrible act, you know, 15 year old humor. Um, <laughs> and then when I was at US, when I was a, a tour guide, that's I did my first kind of open mic nights at uh, the comedy store. And then, um, then went to college, and then out of college, I started doing it full time. Did full full time for about five years. Wow! I actually think that doing stand up must be the in a, in our business of you know acting, directing, writing. Mm. Doing stand up must be the most terrifying because you're up there on your own. What do you do if they don't laugh? <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's what I always say: like stand up is terrifying if you're a person who would not do stand up. If you are drawn to do stand up, you have a, there's a particular ego you have to have to do stand up that is more about if it doesn't go well, you're like those people are idiots, you know. <laughs> so you you have an ego like 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 a normal person wouldn't do stand up, but somebody who wants to be a stand up, that's all they can think about, and it's so it's such a natural thing to be oh, up there. Oh, how interesting! Well, when you bomb. But when you bomb, it's terrible. I mean, there's nothing worse than that. And when you first start out, the, it's so funny. Like, I used to love being at open mic nights because, you know, it's all people who've never done it before. And you just see it happen over and over, which is, you know, because I did this too. You stand in front of your mirror at home, you write your act, <laughs> you, you rehearse it. And when you do your first joke, you hear this giant laugh in your head of like, that's going to kill, you know. And so and you rehearse the thing with, with this giant audience response. Every time somebody gets up there and they do the first joke really confident and it gets nothing and you see their entire world crumble oh. in on themselves because they're like, wait, you were supposed to laugh. So now I've got this joke that does it and then it just goes down the oh, toilet. God, but, you know, that's how you learn to be resilient. Yeah, God. Did, did you have anyone, I mean, were you, your mom and dad weren't in show business or anything like that, were they? No, they weren't, but they wanted to be. Oh, I mean, okay. you know, my dad owned a, a store, like a sporting goods army surplus store. And my mom was, you know, was, you know, basically a housewife, which, you know, back then. But she loved, I had the best of both worlds because my mom loved really silly comedy. Um, you know, she was, she would always famously talk about, she imitated Charlie Chaplin at a party once and she got a giant laughs. So she thought that was great. <laughs> and then, then, and then my dad was a real raconteur. He loved to tell jokes, very like wordy, specific jokes that kind of were stories. 
And he was great. There's, I've never heard a better joke teller than my father. He could just held, hold a, a table wrapped with a joke. Because, you know, most people want to tell a joke, and you're always kind of like, oh, God, here I it know, comes. And, you know, I like know. slog through it. But he could do it. Um, and so I kind of have my sense of humor is very high and low. Like I've got kind of my dad's smart sense of humor. And then I got my mom's really dumb, <laughs> silly <laughs> sense of humor. And I kind of like how it kind of mixes up, you know. <laughs> who, who, when you were little, I mean, kind of high, you know, teens, who did you have heroes that you thought I'd love to be like oh, yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, Steve Martin was my yeah. enormous hero back then. Just because I loved, again, he was a high and low. Like, his act was smart and, and silly at the yeah. same time. But I loved, like, George Carlin and uh, and uh, Lenny Bruce. I mean, I just voraciously listened to comedy albums, which was the thing back then, before they had comedy TV specials and stand-up specials and all that. You would just get these comedy albums, and I would play them over and over and over and over again. Well, one of my favorites from, I, I don't remember all the American ones because I was in England, but um, Nichols and May, Mike Nichols and oh, yeah. May, those I've actually I've yeah. st I've still got those on recordings. They are absolutely hysterical. Absolutely. No, they're brilliant. You know, yeah, and that, that kind of what I it was the kind of like stand up meets sketch comedy, yeah. and, and they were so brilliant. And obviously, they their careers went very well after that. Too. Oh, slightly. <laughs> yeah, I would say just they just did okay, right? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Not not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a real affinity for for Mike Nichols. I mean, he's a real hero just because, yeah. you know, he... Did you ever meet him? Followed son of the same trajectory. No, I never did. Yeah. I have so many friends who are friends of his yeah. and never got to meet him. Well, I, I was lucky because yeah. I years ago I did a, a show on Broadway with Tommy Tune, my yeah. one and only. that's right. And the original director, Tommy and he fell out and so it all went kind of awful. Um, and he got Mike Nichols in as a kind of doctor director. And he wow. put the show back together. So I got to know Mike. He was one of the loveliest, sweetest men on earth, apart from being this yeah. huge talent. And he wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't exactly. take credit for it, but he, he, he actually directed the show. Boy, that's amazing. Yes. Wow. You know, we, we, my friends and I, we ran into Tommy Toon a few years ago in Palm Springs on, oh. a, on a night at some uh, club. And he was so cool. He was, I mean, he's massively tall. It's crazy. Six foot six. He, <laughs> and I'm five and he feels six. like he's, <laughs> but he feels like he's eight feet tall or something. There's something he's so like kind of uh, like stretched out in, in a beautifully proportionate way. But he's wearing this gorgeous jacket. And it's just like, oh, my God, it's Tommy Toon. Well, so that was a real a thrill bit, to get to see A bit like him. you. He dresses beautifully. You are s such a dresser, I have to tell everybody. Oh. When we came to dinner at your lovely house in London, you look so gorgeous. You had your, that oh, um, you. uh, maroon velvet smoking jacket. Do you remember? Yes. You probably don't remember. <laughs> oh, I remember. Yes. I always remember. Oh, I remember it. Okay. You did. You looked amazing. <laughs> and Tommy's the same. Thank he you. always dresses beautifully. Because it's kind oh. of... Especially since COVID, everyone dresses down. Everyone's still in blooming track suits. And oh, <laughs> I know. Twiggy, it, it's it's so it's so upsetting. I I I spent my whole life trying to get guys to step it up, you know. And, and you're right, the pandemic. You know, yeah. I did. I had an Instagram show that I did every day during the pandemic. This cocktail thing, and part of the reason was just to give try to get people out of their pajamas, you know, like, because, you know, like I always said, like, you can't spend the day in the clothes you slept in. It's just, it's it, defeating and you just feel terrible. You think it's going to be great. And then by the end of the day, you're like, oh, this is sad because <laughs> you're getting back in the bed you didn't make. And it's just like, oh God. So clothes make the person, right? 
so you were doing stand-up. What, what kind of got you into... Did you get into your filmmaking through writing, through acting, through... Explain how yeah. that all happened or did it all kind of intertwine? Well, I wanted to do it all. I mean, I wanted to be like Albert Brooks or Woody Allen, you know, who would write, direct, star in, produce their own movies. And that to me was the goal. And so um, so I went to, I was a stand-up comedian, but then I found out about film school when I was a tour guide. And so went there thinking, oh, I'll learn how to do it all, basically. Um, and also kind of thinking as an actor, I'd, it'd be good to know what happens behind the camera so I'd be better on screen. But really the goal was to do it all. And um, and then did it. I mean, I I, I worked as an actor for, for many years uh, as a, like a, a character actor, you know, so I'd be like the sixth lead on a TV show. And that happened like five different TV series that all got canceled, except when I got to the very last one, which is this thing called Sabrina the I Teenage say, Witch, which they- Huge, Sabrina, wasn't it? It worked out great. So finally, that thing, you know, as an actor, you go like, I'm finally on a show that's a hit. <laughs> like, I'm going to be taken care of for seven years. So we get to the end of the first season and they call up and they say like, oh, well, we got some bad news. We're going to write you out of the show because we don't know how to write for your character. <laughs> oh, it's like, I know how to write for it. I could do it. Oh, and God. so that kicked me out of the nest, really, because I've been wanting to direct and wanting to do it all. And then basically I kind of took the money I made on that show and made this very tiny independent film that I wrote, directed, and starred in um, called Life Sold Separately that's never been seen <laughs> outside of my house. Um, <laughs> but but that, that, got, that got me making movies and also realized, you know what, I think I'm better off directing other people. It's a, it's a completely different skill set to direct yourself in a movie. Yeah, I often, I often wonder how people do that. There are a few actors who do that. And I always yeah, Bradley think, Cooper and all yeah, these people, but and uh, Kenneth Branagh very much in yeah. our country. It must be so hard because you can't you can't watch yourself. I mean, you have to do it, and then I suppose watch play. Is that how 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 you kind of make it work? Well. I mean, you know, when I did it, we had no money, so we didn't have playback. We just would shoot it and go, I hope that was good. You know, but <laughs> but it, it's interesting. It's a different mindset because there's I, I didn't not I didn't hate it because what it is, you're in the scene and you're almost controlling the scene as an actor because, you know, if you're the make yourself the lead, you're, you're sort of the, the ringmaster while you're doing it. Um, and I didn't mind it. You get in that, that mindset and it's okay. I just watching the movie went like, I just don't think I'm a good enough actor. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I had things I could do. I was like a good, funny, you know, sidekick or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I realized I'm much better at watching a performance and going like, oh, try this, do this, do this, and making that person better than you know, I used to always do like a little cameo in my movies and I've kind of stopped doing it because the loss of power is so horrendous because, you, you know, you're directing people, telling them what to do and all this. Then when you step in front of that camera and if you're not great, I can just see all the crew and the actors going like, wait, this guy's giving me directions. Look, at he can't even do it. <laughs> so I was like, forget it. I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> so um, what was your, so your first feature film is the one you said nobody's seen was that a feature yeah. or was it a short yeah it was a feature feature length wow yeah well that's yeah. i mean that's an amazing because i know how hard it is to get projects going and money rate we've all done you know we've all had projects yeah. 
that you just can't get the money raised or some something yeah. happens. It's really, yeah. really difficult. So that that must have been a, what what kind of period was this? Well, it was coming out of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, so I'd saved up about thirty thousand dollars. Was this the nineties? Yeah, this was uh, it was ninety seven. Okay, yeah, okay, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, and so I had this money, but I I didn't know I was not going to be coming back to the show. <laughs> so I'd been <laughs> writing this movie and go, on the break, I'm going to use all my money for that, and then I'll go back the next year and make the money back. And so made the movie, spent all Lori and I's money on it, and then got the call as I'm in post-production, oh, we're not going to bring you back to the show. And it's like, oh, no. <laughs> like so. <laughs> I, I, I just bankrupted the family right, with a movie that turned out I couldn't sell anywhere because it was just so small. Um, I'm proud of it. It was actually, you know, it's a very sweet little film, but it's it's it was tiny. And, and the year I did it, like I think that year, Sundance had like 1,500 uh, feature films submitted oh to them. So so forget it. You know, you just couldn't get in with a little movie about four people in the middle of a field waiting for a UFO, which was what it was. <laughs> so. Great Very idea. small. <laughs> Thank you. So what? So what? What did you? So you 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 haven't got any money. You've spent your money. Right. You're out of the TV show. So what did you? What did you do? It was a terrible year. It was the worst year of my life professionally because I had this thing. I couldn't sell it. We couldn't get any film festivals. I was writing scripts that I couldn't get made. And it was really going like, I guess I, I'm going to have to get like a regular job and give up the showbiz dream. And then that film got into this traveling film festival called Flix Tour, which was basically they would fly you in to the middle of the country, rent you a car, and then you drive college to college and show your movie, you know, and, and for, for a few pennies or whatever. But when I was out doing that is when I had the idea for... Uh, a show called Freaks and Geeks, which oh, I created. Oh, we know about Freaks and Geeks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, so I wrote the pilot for that while I was out on the road and then sent it uh, to my friend Judd Apatow, who we'd been stand-ups together, known as Other Forever, and uh, he'd seen my movie and liked it and said, I just got this TV deal at DreamWorks. If you have an idea, let me know. So sent it to him, and he was like, I'm going to buy this. So my life changed within 24 hours. It was amazing. Wow. Isn't it amazing? That's the wonderful thing about our business. That I mean, it can go the other way as well. We all know that. Yeah. And we've all had the downside. Yeah. But when those things happen, it's it's magical, isn't it? You must have been like on cloud nine when he oh, said that. I, I remember. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I had this little notebook. I remember I was on the tube going out to see a friend right when we're in the middle of doing the deal and everything. I wrote in this notebook, I think I'm about to get everything I've ever wanted in uh, my life. And, and you know, and obviously there are tons of ups and downs oh, after that. Yeah. But just the fact that you go like, I've kind of gone over that big hurdle to be accepted as a writer and just as a creative. Um, it was really, yeah, it was unbelievable. Now we have to talk about bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> so did you... Did you, had you worked with M Melissa McCarthy before Bridesmaid or or, or did you no. cast cuz you directed it right and yeah. who mm -hmm. who wrote Bridesmaids was it uh Kristen Wiig and, and yeah. Annie Mumolo okay yeah Annie plays the nervous woman on the plane next to her, you know, uh, when she's, I got sucked into the toilet. The woman got sucked into the oh, toilet. That uh, scene on the that, plane is hysterical. When so she gets, funny, when she gets drunk. 
punch yeah. comes out. Oh, no, totally. Like, I'm ready to party. It makes me hysterical. The genesis of that scene is very interesting, though, because that scene wasn't originally in the script. Um, the whole thing was they went to Vegas. They actually got to Vegas, and it was about Annie trying to, like, impress them. She has no money, and then they go to this crazy strip club, and there's all the really funny scenes happen there. But the, the hangover had just come out, and we were just like, you know, the hangover just did Vegas so well. Why, why are we going to try to compare ourselves to that? And so we we're sitting around. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. What if they just don't get to Vegas? What if it all falls apart on the plane? And then I remember Annie was working with us in this rewrite room and Kristen was off on Saturday Night Live and Annie was like, well, let me go write it. And so she went off and wrote this 16 page scene and I was out on a location scout because we did this pretty late in the process. And I remember sitting in that van, this location van, reading the scene and just howling and going, it oh, my God. Hysterical. When I got the colonial woman on the wing, I was like, Andy, this is <laughs> you're, you're beyond this. We're into a whole new world of genius right now. <laughs> it is. It's absolutely brilliant. And of course, my one of one of our best friends from years ago married a lovely lady called Rose Byrne, who's become a dear, dear yes. friend. And lovely Rose. I love Rose. She's so lovely. And oh, she's, she's the best. She's and Bobby's in, great. Oh, yeah. Bob, yeah. Well, Bobby, Bobby Lee, who you met, my husband. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He was doing a play, a Noel Coward play, actually, in the at the Bay Street Theatre in mm-hmm. on Long Island. And yeah. I think it was Bobby's first. He was really young. He was like in his early twenties, I think. And I think it was his first stage. Um, experience and he was he was and he was so sweet I remember him well because I I was I was there as you know just on holiday with Lee while he was working and uh, being the wifey the good wifey there you go well done (laughs) no I I like doing that but so Bobby we got really close with Bobby and, and and Lee became like almost like a father figure for Bobby and so we, it became a very close relationship and he's just a, such a sweet, and then he, be, you know, over the years he became this big actor and it's so sweet because yeah. I think he had three lines in the play or something. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we had, I had so much fun because he, I, I put him in my movie Spy and he and Rose Byrne acted together and that was so much fun. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, and he's so, God, he's so talented. I mean, they both are. It's crazy. Like one family can't have that much talent. Other than yours. <laughs> Did you see him in on Broadway? In, I, I, it's it, the mother effer in the hat. Oh, right. No, I didn't get oh to see that. No. He was mm. unbelievable. It was an, it was a wonderful play. Absolutely wow. wonderful. He was I amazing. Mean, his, his, his season on Boardwalk Empire, that's one of my favorite characters ever. Yeah. I mean, that's the, one of the scariest characters I've ever seen. <laughs> and he's just, he just played it with such relish. I remember, I was I afraid, to, I, when I first met him, I was afraid, like, is he going to be like that guy? And he's, like you say, he's the sweetest man in the world. I always say to, you know, actors like that, I always say it must be so much more fun to play bad yeah. guys like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Playing, playing the ingenue is always boring. Yeah, it's really boring. I mean, I always got to play, you know, the nice one. And you'd think, oh, I'd really like to play somebody horrible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> somebody, maybe in my old age, somebody will cast me as a witch or something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, you know, it must be so much more fun to be wicked and horrible, mustn't it? Yeah. Oh, no, totally. you got to be un- unhinged. you got to do all the stuff you can't do in real life. Exactly. How did you Meet Melissa McCarthy. It was um, at the very end of the casting process because we had cast 
found pretty much all the people we thought we wanted to cast for for the all the roles. But the role of Megan was just, it was such a specific role. We saw so many really good people. I mean, just, you know, really great. But it was just like, I don't know. I don't know if we found her yet. Mm -hmm. And it was really the end of the process when Kristen and Annie said, well, you know, we work with this woman, Melissa McCarthy. She's in the groundlings and people like line up around the block when she's performing. I was like, oh, cool. And I'm thinking like, why didn't you tell me about her (laughs) earlier? Um, And she came in and... She started the audition and it was so out of the box from what we had seen that it took me like 15 seconds to realize it was funny because I was just kind of like, what is she doing? (laughs) And then you go like, oh, my God, that's hilarious. And then she just started riffing. And then I always put like an an improv section in my um, auditions just to make, make sure somebody could bring something extra to the role. And so I was like, okay, so, you know, but I thought she was playing it as a lesbian. And so I was like, oh, this is great. So I said, well, let's do a thing where um, you are trying to get Kristen's character to go out on a date with you <laughs> or to go out with you. And she, okay, so she starts doing this thing and she's like talking and she goes like, we're going to go out, we're going to get all these men and we're just going to eat them up and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. So what, who is this character? And then I was like, okay, that, she's just too brilliant. Um, and, and, and yeah, and, and she'll, she tells the story. She said, Joey says she left that audition going like, oh, why did I do all that crazy stuff? I blew it. I didn't get the role. And we were, we were, high, we were high-fiving back in the audition room. But don't you think that, Leo says that. He says often oh, auditions are horrible. They're horrible for everyone, aren't they? I don't, I've yeah. never met an actor who likes an audition. But often the ones you think you've really messed up are the yeah. ones you get. And the other ones where you think, oh, oh that was pretty good. Don't mm-hmm. get it. <laughs> it's so I, mean, you, weird. I, I, I wish I was a director back when I was an actor because I wouldn't have beaten myself up so badly after so many auditions oh. because I always had in my head of like, if you stumble over a word, you blew it and that's it. So I would like just drill myself so much to make sure I could get through the words and so I get through them word perfect, but I wasn't putting any personality into it. You know, and now when I audition people, I've had so many times like I've had people like can barely get through the scene, but I'm just like, there's something funny about that person I like, you know, and I, then I'll go like, okay, that, that scene's written badly because they can't say it. And so we got to fix it. And, and, you know, but the stuff I just beat myself up about had no, no, in you know, know. effect on anything. And, and it's just, you know, so that's when I audition actors, first of all, you know, my, my old uh, producing partner, Judd Apatow always said that, um, he said, everybody leaves one of your auditions thinking they have the role because oh. <laughs> because I want to make everybody feel so good and I'm laughing all this stuff, you know, but in your head, you're like, oh, they're great, but they're not right. Yeah. Or I don't know. Do, you, do you have a built in picture for a character before you see the actors or or do you wait kind of blankly until somebody walks in and you think, oh, that could be the character? Does that make sense? No, it makes 100% sense. I mean, it was the biggest lesson I learned in the beginning of my career because you always go in, especially if you're written something or rewritten it or whatever, you're going like, I know exactly what this has to be. And so you'll see people and if somebody comes in, they're great and you're like, oh my God, they're so great, but they're not quite what I saw. You know, I learned early on, like, if they're great, don't let them go. Rewrite the part. You're not Shakespeare, you know, like (laughs) you can rewrite this part and hang on to somebody great. And so that's really, you know, you go in with a preconceived notion. But I some of the best castings I've done in my projects have been when somebody comes in who's the polar opposite physically, 
emotionally, <laughs> everything from what I thought I wanted. And it just turns out to be so much better. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I've often wondered that, that whether you, you, you know, you are open to it or whether you well, have something built in. Inflexibility in a director, in a filmmaker especially, yeah. is, is is a real uh, check against um, kind of quality and, and a great project because, <laughs> you know, that, that it's the curse of the writer-director. Uh, and I've known a few and I've known actors who I really love who have gotten in those projects and, you know, who, who especially like who are really great improv actors. I'm like, oh, my God, so how was it? It must have been so much fun. And they go like, it was a nightmare. They wouldn't let us change a word, alter anything. It had to be exactly the way they wanted it. And that to me is crazy. I've learned if you get talented people, get their input, let them do their thing, do everything. And then we'll sort it out in the editing room. Like I've, I've shot so much stuff that actors wanted to do, which I'm like, oh God, what are they doing? This is terrible. And then I get back to the editing room and go like, that's actually, thank God we had that. That's way better than the thing I had in my head that I so desperately wanted. But don't you think also the fact that you've been an actor and, you know, done stand-up, yeah. that, that helped? I, I always think that directors who've never done anything yeah. like that, it's, 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 they're sometimes harder on actors, if you know what I mean. Oh, 100%. I, I think no. directors who've acted are much kinder. Yeah. Well, because we, we understand how hard it is. Mm. I mean, you know, when I was in film school, you know, the whole thing, they loved, all everybody in film school loved this story, this Hitchcock story about, like, he was set up on a tower and there was a big wide shot of a, a street and an actor was at the end and he had to, the actor had to run towards the camera and the actor said, what's my motivation? And he said, I'll tell you when you get here. And they all thought that was hilarious. But I would go like, well, no, that's that's not fair because... How, what is his motivation? Is he scared? Is he, yeah. is, you know, is he running for his life? Is he happy? Is, you know, like, so this whole thing that, you know, directors who don't know actors, they just kind of will torture actors in that way. And, and I, whenever I lecture to film students, I say, like, get an acting class, get an improv class. You just have to do it so you know what those people are oh, going how in, So you advise them, even if they're oh, not, yeah. not going to perform, to yeah. go and do something. Know how vulnerable these people yeah. are because it's it, it, everybody, you know, the popular thing is like, oh, acting so easy. Acting is, you know, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world because you are out, you're the one. <laughs> you know, I can tell you a bunch of stuff to do and, and do this and do that. But if I direct you the wrong way or if, if it's just not connecting, I don't get blamed for it as much as you will get blamed for it because you're on the screen. Yeah, and so to not understand that, not be sympathetic to that, yeah. Or, yeah, on top of the fact that actors have to be paid to wait. Too. Yeah, or, or, or on the stage, which is, you know, I, because yeah. I didn't plan to do that in my career, the moment I, you know, when Tommy called me about doing the Broadway show, my immediate mm. reaction was, oh, I can't do that. And he, <laughs> and he yeah. proudly said, there's no such word as can't. <laughs> There you yeah, go. Pack your bag. My mother, my mother, my mother used to say, "Can't means won't." <laughs> oh, thought, that's interesting. It's a good but mantra. he was right. That was complete yeah. fear on my side, you know, because it's yeah. it's really scary, and it's you know, stepping out on. Not only I said to him, but it's not just a stage; it's Broadway. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Talk the about biggest stage in the world. Jumping in at the deep end, you know. I'd, <laughs> I'd done one little show in London, I think. I mean, it was like madness. 
but I did have the protection of him and Mike Nichols and, you know, but yeah. but it is very, very frightening to, you know, and, you know, as wonderful as it is, and luckily it yeah. turned out okay, but, you know, it's it's very scary to put yourself out there. It's very, ex- you're so exposed. I mean, there's nothing more raw than that. I have to laugh because as a director, um, I always say I get to watch people realize they their lifelong dream is to be an actor the minute they hear him a director <laughs> i've been in so many situations <laughs> i had one thing I, I was joining this private club and they had to do like a you know an interview and this guy comes in he's you know it's like i don't know he's an older guy completely out of shape not not an attractive man and i can say that is an unattractive man the, and he <laughs> we're sitting there and he's like you know he goes so well, what do you do i'm a, I'm a, I'm a own film director and i see his face he goes oh oh, oh um well i mean you know, if you need any actors, I'm always free. It's like, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, wait, no, you're perfect. I really want some paunchy, you know, rosacea, addled, guy, fleshy guy to be in my, would you be the star of my new movie, please? But that's yeah. how people have this thing of like, oh, sure, that'd be fun. It's just like, well, you probably know this too. People go, we want to visit the set. I'm always like, you don't want to visit the set. I'm telling you, you do not want to visit. But people get there all excited. And within a half an hour, like, this is really slow and boring. Really? And I think people think a movie shoot is like a play where they're going to, they're just going to come and watch this movie happen. It's like, you guys, I'm going to be on a shot of like somebody's, you know, shoe for, for, for the next hour or whatever it is. So uh, yeah, showbiz, you know, it's a great business, but it's not as exciting as people think it is. Have you ever directed anything on stage or would you like to, or? I did a bit of it, but um, I, I'm too much of a control freak in the sense <laughs> of, you know, to me, like directing a play is like directing, like coaching a hockey team. Like you kind of, you get, get everybody all set and then they go out and you're like, I hope they do it right. You know? And I'm, I just love movies. Like I, I you know, control every single moment, control it, meaning I can capture it yeah. and get it right. All, I'm much more interested in like getting something perfect once and it never happens again, <laughs> you know, lightning you, in a bottle. Do you work very close? Because I, I think in, in filmmaking, I, I'm not a filmmaker, but from what I visually see that working closely with your editor is really important. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. ed- no, ed- editing can make or break a movie, correct? Hundred percent. I mean, it's it's all about the editing. All we do when we are directing and in production is we are feeding the editing room. That and if you look at any other way, you're crazy because it's you have to be aware of that because it all comes together. The editing room. I so many people. It's so funny. People don't understand like the filmmaking process. People are like, so are you involved in the editing? It's like, yeah, I sit there every second of the day with the editor. That's that's when my job really comes I'd together. Say that, that's that they are the really important months, aren't they? Oh my or God. however I, long it takes. Yeah, I, I mean, it comes down to frames, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, but it, it, but it's also just it, it's such you you have all these pieces. You look, the worst day of every any director's life is when the editor shows you his first assembly because <laughs> you go, I've just made the worst movie ever made, <laughs> and, and it's just you know everything's too long, everything's just kind of pieced together the way it was in the script, and. 
and you're just like, it's like, you know, a director, I know um, she directed, uh, I can't remember her name. She's great. She directed Kung Fu Panda 2. And we were on a panel and they were asking about like, why, how hard is it to watch your movies when they're done? And she says, it's just like a Gatling gun of pain. And I get that because like every decision you made, good or bad, is just flying at you. You can't stop it. It's like, oh my God, why did I do that? Why did I do this? And so, um, and so that's kind of what it is. You know, but then, then as you get in there and over the, you know, the course of the months that you have, just start whittling each scene, getting it right, getting it right. And it starts to take shape. And then they start to put sound effects in and get the music right. And then you just, you know, but there's so many little things like, you know, you'll go, oh, this scene doesn't work. Um, it's too long or this and that. And a lot of the times a scene that you know should work doesn't work because of a scene that happened 10 minutes before that either kneecapped it or repeated it or something. And so it, it's the, the it's you, you're like a sleuth when you're putting a movie together. And it's a bit like a jigsaw, isn't it? Very much so. Like, Very, and that, that but piece. that's the fun part. That's what I love about editing is like once I have all the pieces and I always overshoot everything. So I've got way too many jokes and way too many scenes mm -hmm. and all that. So then, yeah, the jigsaw puzzle, and you're like, what if we move this here? What if we put this here? You know, and that's where, you know, a script is, look, the, the most important thing in the world is a script. You have to have a great script. But then at a certain point, the movie starts to take on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And that's when you suddenly go like, well, let's get it what we have in the script, but let's let it expand and let's let it play because it's going to become a different organism once we start to put it together. Do you do you know when to stop or do you have a time limit limit because the studio have said I've got you've got to stop here or the money's got to pay for it or, or is it yeah. hard to stop because presumably you can go on editing and editing and editing <laughs> yeah that's exactly well the, the, for me it's all about test screenings so you know oh, we, okay. we do well, that's interesting yeah so what i always do i try to do a test screening really fast so you know do the get the assembly go do my pass get it where i go like i think this kind of works Let's put it in front of an audience because I haven't fallen in love with it yet. You know, once if you, if, you know, the, the Directors Guild gives you 10 weeks. You've got 10 weeks that you can, nobody can bother you and you can do it. And most people take that full 10 weeks. I usually do my first test screening four or five weeks in. Mm. So I still, so now nobody can touch me. I can go in, go, oh, the audience, I thought this was going to be great. The audience didn't like this scene, but this joke I thought was terrible. They think is hilarious. So, I got you know, and then you just keep reworking it. So by the time we kind of get close to locking it down or at least showing the studio, I can at least go, I know we tried that. You think you wanted this, this didn't work, but this, this works here. And, and you know, I, I, I don't trust my tastes up to the point where the audience takes over because I can tell an audience all day, no, you're crazy. This is great. And they're like, well, we don't like it. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I might as well be, you know, making movies for myself. Um, and do you find you know. audiences are different in different, certainly different parts of the country or different countries? Yeah. That's yes. weird, isn't it? Because especially with well, comedy, <laughs> what, what makes oh, man. different groups of people laugh you know <laughs> well no slam no slam against my 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 uh, adopted country of of the uk uh <laughs> countries of the uk but you're the worst test audiences in oh, the history of the planet why 
they don't laugh. And, and like, I mean, I've had, <laughs> we, we did the spy premiere in, in, you know, in Leicester square, uh-huh. the movie, the movie kills. I mean, you know, we scientifically know it kills. We've done a million test screenings. We've done all these other things. It just kills all the time. We do this test, this, not test screening. We do the premiere in this giant, you know, the giant Leicester yeah. square thing. And it's like, pretty dead silent the whole time. I'm like, what is happening? But then everybody uh, afterwards, oh, that was very funny. Very, that was hilarious. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> give <laughs> it up. They're silent <laughs> laughers. <I> go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I watch British TV and everybody's screaming with laughter at everything on the TV. So I, I'm like, what is it me? Is it just, do I have an American sense of humor? No, What's going on? No, they just got people at the back. Clapping. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's just crazy. But uh, but no, I mean, you know, but comedy is a very specific thing. Oh, and tell the, me. The hardest thing about comedy and making commercial comedy is figuring out how to make it work everywhere. And the, the biggest thing you want to stay away from. impossible to make it if, funny if, everywhere. If you make your comedy about the human condition, it will play most it, places. It's universal. It, yeah, it's when you get into very specific references and cultural references, you know. And I, we, we love those kind of jokes and stuff. But that's when you go like, okay, they don't know what that is. And when, especially when I was making the movie last Christmas, I, you know, that's a British film. I had my American sensibility, and fortunately, Emma Thompson and all these other people were like, okay, we wouldn't say it like that. Which after a while, I get you go like, oh my god, like how would you say? <laughs> like, there's so many things I think are funny. They go, we would never say that. It's like, okay, but um, <laughs> but you, but you need to know that because you know everything. It's very different. So I know you've had, um, you've got a new film coming up. I don't know how soon, yes. but if, can, oh, you, can, can, we, this... can we have a little teaser? You not? certainly can. You certainly can. I, I can't tell you the name of it yet no, no, because we, right. we, we haven't officially decided on it. <laughs> okay. It's gone through a few different uh, things, but it's John Cena uh, and Aquafina, Nora Lum, and uh, Simu Liu, who played um, uh, Shang-Chi. And it's a big, crazy action comedy. It's kind of in the same vein of my movie Spy, um, which is fun because I, I haven't done like a bigger, like, action comedy since then. Well, I'd say I did Ghostbusters too, but then since then it's been like Simple Favor and Last Christmas and Ghostbusters 2 was was that the the with the, all the the women? Yeah, mine was a Ghostbusters yeah. Answer the Call it's called. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no controversy around that movie whatsoever. <laughs> was was there controversy because it was women? Oh yeah, oh, it was a whole. <laughs> oh, it was right. it was it was a very interesting part of my life. Let's just say even Donald Trump came out against my movie. So there you go. Oh my god! But, well, uh, that but now be, it's that, quite beloved. That should make ev- everyone love it. <laughs> it's a badge of honor. It's a bad. I wear it proudly. Exactly. But so uh, no, when, no, I'm really excited. When really does the new one come? Out? Can we know when it's going to be released in the UK and the US? E- yeah, it'll be in the in this this coming summer. We're not sure if it's going to be July or August, but okay, it'll be lovely. right around Ooh, then. Yeah, we, and it's we, it's super fun, super fun. We look for. I'm dying to see it. Yeah. Carly, my daughter, who you you very sweetly invited to the script, she, she absolutely it. loved it. But she oh, good. she's a walking encyclopedia of everything you've done. So she <laughs> is a big sweet. fan. <laughs> oh, she's so she, sweet. It was so nice she, to meet her. She it's loved. Just lovely. She loved it. But I we oh. we look forward to seeing it. Anyway, I think I could chat to you for hours and hours. But um, I'm sure you need your breakfast because it must be. Or do you get up really early? <laughs> For you, I got up early, my oh, friend. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> no, That's no, the only please. trouble when people are, you know, across the globe. 
No, um, no. I, I can't actually complain because we're we, we're doing this at 9.30 in the morning LA time. So how sad if I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm so tired. Yeah, listen, <laughs> and in LA, it always amazed me when we lived there, people would say, you want to have a breakfast meeting? Breakfast oh, yeah. meeting? Half past seven or eight? No, thank you. Exactly. I'll, I'll, stick, I'll, be, I'll stick to lunch. <laughs> you'll be on your brightest possible uh, performance oh. at, at early, early. <laughs> but anyway, it's been absolutely lovely. And um, have a fabulous Christmas. You too. And you see too. you. Will you be back in the new year? Yeah, to London. back in the new year. Mm-hmm. And then we're, I'm actually shooting my uh, my new movie in uh, uh, Italy. So uh, that will be in the in the spring, yes. Oh, that's so. exciting. Whereabouts in Italy? Anywhere nice? Well, it's all uh, nice. Rome, it's all nice. Yeah, it, it is nice. A Roman Capri. So, oh, um, you poor thing. I know. I'm so sorry. You Please know, send me care packages. You know, that's a really tough thing to have to do. I know. I know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I give so others may enjoy their lives. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to let you go, and it's been okay. a joy. As I say, happy Christmas. Enjoy your sunshine. Send some over here. <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Twiggy. And love to leave, please. Okay. I shall love you and leave you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been absolutely fab. It's been an honor, <laughs> an absolute you. honor. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, gosh. What a lovely man. The lovely director, producer, actor. Oh, he does so many things. The wonderful Paul Feig. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.